Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to Food Week on The Decibel. With inflation rising worldwide, we couldn't spend a week talking about food without talking about food insecurity. In Canada, food prices have gone up 7.7% on average in the last year. That's the highest annual increase in 40 years. The charity Food Banks Canada did a poll earlier this year and found that about one in five Canadians, they asked, said they were eating less food than they think they should because they couldn't afford it. And this isn't just an issue in Canada. Food insecurity is growing around the world. This is UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking earlier this year. Global hunger levels are at a new high. In just two years, the number of severely food insecure people has doubled from 135 million pre-pandemic to 276 million today. More than half a million people are living in famine conditions, an increase of more than 500 percent since 2016. We've heard a lot about how the war in Ukraine has made the problem worse, but there are many factors driving food insecurity. And we're basically off track on all of those goals. There's virtually none of those goals that we're we're making the right levels of progress on. With that said, on, on the topic of food, I, I remain very, very optimistic, despite all the worrying trends. Dr. Evan Frazier is director of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. He's on the show today to tell us how bad the global food crisis is, how we got here, and what we can do about it. This is The Decibel. Evan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no sweat. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Maybe we can just start by kind of setting the scene a little bit here. How bad would you say is the global food crisis right now? So... The global food crisis right now is is indeed pretty bad. Senior United Nations officials have told me sort of off the record and just in casual conversations that they're expecting upwards of a billion people who last year were doing okay but not great to be sliding deeper and deeper into uh, poverty and food insecurity, unable to afford basic necessities. Um, and all this is driven by a number of factors, uh, most obviously the, uh, the conflict in the Ukraine, but not exclusive to the conflict in Ukraine, that are, mean that food is really expensive right now. Hmm. Yeah, so shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine, we, we did start hearing about how this was going to impact food globally, um, especially when we were hearing about grain blockaded in Ukraine. Um, the country is sometimes referred to as the breadbasket of Europe. So this this seems like it would be significant. How much of the world's wheat supply does Ukraine actually account for? Yeah, so so with all, all this talk about global food insecurity and shortages and stuff, uh, actually talking about quantity is a really great question. And, and actually, I really think it's worth sort of pausing maybe reflecting a bit because there's some really counterintuitive things that are going on, but they're really important to, um, to distinguish. And the first thing I'll say is if you take all the food that's produced in the world and divide it by all the people, there's actually still more than enough. Um, there's something like, according to the United Nations statistics, there's something like 2,800 dietary calories 
every single day for every single person on the planet. So that's more than enough. Then you add the fact that we waste about a third of the world's food and you get the sense that there's no real shortage. But the issue here is that Ukraine is a really important exporter of wheat and other key ingredients such as sunflower oil, which is used in a lot of processed food. Russia is also a big exporter of wheat and we're not buying a lot of Russian grain right now either. Russia is a big producer of fertilizers, which are a major input into the price of wheat. So all of these factors added up plus inflation that was already happening, plus supply chain bottlenecks and, uh, and challenges associated with labor and, and the late pandemic problems associated with maintaining the world's economy. All these things are pushing the price of food up. So while we're not facing an absolute shortage, we are facing more expensive food and that's causing poorer people to be unable to afford to eat. So it's really an economic issue linked with the price of food than an absolute scarcity of food. So this is actually a really important distinction then. There's, there's kind of the question of how much food there is, but then also how affordable is this food and how accessible is it to get it to people around the world then? That's precisely right. More than anything else, this is an affordability of food issue linked with inflation and high energy prices and supply chain bottlenecks. This isn't a, oh my God, we're running out of food scenario. I do want to come back to Ukraine, though, because we do we do hear about this as, as being kind of an issue that exacerbated things this year. How much does Ukraine play into this? Like how much food and wheat does it actually supply the world with? The way I'm seeing the Ukraine story is that it is a straw that broke the camel's back. It's the catalyst or the trigger of the crisis. It's not the underlying cause of the food insecurity crisis. And we can get into that. But last year, Russia, the US, Canada and Australia each exported around $7 billion worth of wheat. Add all those ones up, that's about 50% of global wheat exports. The Ukraine comes next. They exported around $5 billion worth of food last year, uh, which is about 8% of the overall global wheat market. Hmm, yeah. And Ukraine specifically, where does usually that wheat go? Because I think that kind of plays into it as well, right? Like where this distribution happens? Uh, my understanding of how wheat markets work is that much of the wheat currently that should be currently exported sort of right now from the Ukraine, what we're hearing, would normally end up in the Middle East and Eastern Africa, parts of the world that are extremely dependent on imports, parts of the world that don't have a lot of alternatives when they need to buy things and parts of the world that have a lot of poor people in them. So they're very, very vulnerable to increases in, in the price of, of their daily bread. So the World Food Program is unbelievably stretched right now. They were, they were already contending with massive humanitarian problems uh, in Eastern Africa and, and the Middle East, but mostly Eastern Africa and, and, and other parts of the world, but, but mostly Eastern Africa, where there is dire, dire situation unfolding and, and, and famine-like conditions and people dying of, of starvation happening right now. And indeed, you know, the cost of, of keeping the World Food Program going, the cost of the grains that they're distributing through humanitarian aid has skyrocketed in recent years, creating a, a sort of a double whammy that, that it's it's really, really costly because grain is expensive. It's really, really costly to give it away through humanitarian aid. So, so it's a, it's a very, very serious situation that's causing hundreds of millions of people to really teeter on the edge of outright starvation. So, Evan, you mentioned, of course, the situation in Ukraine is just one factor that's happened very recently in this in this whole issue of food insecurity. So, what are those other underlying problems that you mentioned? 
Well, I mean, ever since the pandemic hit, we've had um, a massive problem of labor in agriculture. We've had massive problems of labor in almost every sector of the economy. Farmers around the world have struggled to get the labor they need to operate their businesses. Uh, another big one is energy prices. And energy and farming go very, very closely together. Uh, producing fertilizer, for instance, is, is very, very energy intensive. Keeping food cold as it moves around North America, say moving from farms in California up to supermarkets in Toronto, that's a very energy intensive system. So whenever energy prices go up, uh, it becomes expensive to run the food system. Uh, of course, we have to talk about climate change and, mm -hmm. and we've had major parts of the world struggle to maintain productivity, including parts of Canada. The prairies of Canada right now are in a, a very serious drought. Um, so you had add all of these factors up together, and then you put the baseline high levels of inflation that we were already contending with, you know, that's been growing over the past year, and it explodes in the last three months with the Ukrainian crisis into an outright catastrophe, outside of being sort of a, a simmering problem for people, you know, trying to make ends meet on their household balance books. Suddenly, food price inflation, starting in March of this year, 2022, goes up really, really aggressively, and, and we're all paying the price. But for those of us who are, are wealthy, it means cutting back on a few things here and there. For people who are closer to the margins, it's, it's you know, a, a, an increase in the price of food of 10% is devastating to a, a family's economy. It really does sound like there's all these factors that are kind of aligning at this point in time to really make it a very difficult situation then when it comes to food security. Can we just talk about, I guess, the history here? Like, how did we end up in a global supply chain system with so little room for error? This, I think, is, is probably the most important part of our conversation right now. So my take on the situation is that this sort of industrial food system that the vast majority of humanity depends on. Uh, it really emerged in the late 20th century, mid to late 20th century, and is based on a couple of, or three, I think, of key assumptions. And, and the first assumption is that it's easy to move things around across international borders, that trade is easy. Every year, trade gets a little easier. It's frictionless. More trade agreements are signed, and that the sort of that project of globalization is proceeding. And, and when it's easy to trade, then the industrial food system makes sense. Similarly, I think the industrial food system emerged during a time when energy prices were generally low and pretty stable, not volatile and high like they are now. And again, when energy prices are low and stable, it makes sense to develop an energy intensive system. And then the third thing has to be uh, about the environment. I mean, the industrial food system emerged at a time when major grain producing regions and the breadbaskets of the world had pretty good weather. They had abundant water. They had fertile topsoil, they had stable weather patterns, no big droughts. And those three assumptions, when those were true, like 20 years ago, then the industrial food system produced a lot of benefits. Lots of problems too, but lots and lots of benefits. But I don't think those three assumptions hold for the 21st century. I mean, energy prices are high and volatile. Climate change is making weather patterns really unpredictable. And ever since President Trump took power, we really have to question whether or not the world will be finding it easier to trade across national borders. So my, my point is that I think the current system is based on the logic of a, of a previous century and that really to be smart, to be resilient, to be adaptive, we need to acknowledge that the world's a different place than it was 40 years ago and that our food system has to um, adapt to, uh, to keep up with the changing realities. And if we don't adapt, we're in trouble? Well, I think what we're seeing this year is, is an illustration of, of the logic of the old system falling apart on us. And this is happening in Canada, too. I'm going into the pandemic, 
figured that about, you know, about one in 12 or one in 13 households, about 8% were um, food insecure. Well, that's closer to 15% now. Uh, food banks have never been busier. So we have this problem happening, you know, in our cities and towns and communities. Uh, it's disproportionately black and indigenous people of color who are affected by it. So there's racism and colonialism elements to food insecurity. But this is a problem that is growing all over the world. And the pace at which it's growing is picking up, which is very, very worrying. I want to ask you about global hunger, because I was surprised to learn that global hunger had actually been on the decline uh, for years until 2015. What happened then that changed things? Yeah, so this is this is one of the big paradoxes of the world right now. Throughout my career, uh, so going back 20, 25 years or so, until 2015, the date you just mentioned, every year, both the number of hungry people and the proportion or the percentage of hungry people on this planet was declining every single year. It was a stable downward slope. And if you and I had been having this conversation in 2014 and you'd asked me what you know, the big issues about um, food systems and hunger and nutrition were, I would have said that the biggest issue was diabetes and obesity and chronic illnesses associated with eating too many calories. Um, but actually since 2015, as you just said, the number of hungry people, both in absolute terms and as a percentage of the world's population, have been going up. And they've gone up every single year now for eight years. And that is incredible. It's incredibly depressing. So the causes for this uh, are much debated by, you know, people like me, academics who study these things. And there's sort of three main reasons. Um, first one is climate change and that big parts of the world simply are not as productive as they used to be. Um, small scale farmers yields are much less stable than they used to be. People are in a far more volatile situation in the world's farming system than they were 10 years ago. So climate change is part of it. Conflict is another part of it. Conflict destroys food systems. And so we think of major conflicts over the last few years, specifically in Eastern Africa and the Middle East, Syria, and now Ukraine. One of the first uh, non-human casualties or system casualties of a conflict is a collapse of the food system. And we see this all throughout history. We see this happening a lot in the last five years. And the third reason is me speculating on a third one, um, but I think there's some evidence, but it's hard to pin it down directly. The issue of growing wealth inequality, the, the fact that the world is ever more divided into a small number of very affluent haves and a vast number of very, very impoverished have-nots. And uh, when you add sort of wealth inequality, conflict and climate change all together, um, those factors amplify each other. They don't act in isolation. And I, I think that those are the three things that have changed since 2015 uh, to create this morally repugnant situation that we live in a world where both obesity and hunger are growing. The UN, the United Nations, they, they'd set a goal to eradicate world hunger by 2030, which is eight years from now. Um, and we were on track to do that, as we said, before 2015. But uh, food insecurity is currently at record highs. So I guess my question is, is, is that 2030 goal, is that still possible at all? Well, I mean, we have to be optimistic. And uh, the UN set bold, ambitious goals that were supposed to be met by 2030 uh, to make the world fundamentally a better place. And these sustainable development goals uh, start with hunger and poverty and end with a well-managed environment and clean air and water and whatnot. And we're basically off track on all of those goals. There's virtually none of those goals that we're, we're making the right levels of progress on. With that said, on, on the topic of food, I, I remain very, very optimistic despite all the worrying trends. 
We waste a lot of food, so that's a fixable problem. Uh, we've also got this wave of agricultural technologies, which is emerging. So the, the same sort of tools that have given us smartphones and the internet and are changing medicine and how medicine's done, we're really only starting to scratch the surface of applying those tools into farming systems and food systems. So, I mean, increasingly farmers are using smart tractors that are backed up with lots of data and robotics and whatnot, and, and that's making them far more efficient, say, in the use of fer nitrogen fertilizer. One of the reasons that I'm optimistic isn't that uh, technology is a panacea, it never is, but I think technology backed up with good policy will actually make this food system of ours far more environmental environmentally efficient, far more nutritious, things like that. Hmm. Okay, so what are the solutions then really um, that we can look to here? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to uh, brainstorm this with you in, in the Canadian context, because every country is a bit different and every region is a bit different. So in Canada, I mean, I would say, first and foremost, we should be imagining creating financial incentives to reward farmers for absorbing carbon dioxide and being thrifty with things like nitrogen fertilizer. And I think our country has, has a massive opportunity to tweak farming practices um, so that in addition to producing food, um, Farms also sequester carbon. Uh, mm. Pillar two in a, what I would like to say is a national agri-food innovation strategy. We should be developing and the world leaders at developing novel ag technologies um, such as vertical farming where you produce fruits and vegetables under LED lights within a city, inside buildings, or cellular agriculture where you produce um, what normally would be proteins that come from animals but you produce them in bioreactors or things that look more like breweries than, than, than farms. And then the third thing I think we really need to do, and, and I'm just going to put a plug in for the next generation, uh, we need to be recruiting young people into this space. And, and that if we do those three things, then that sort of world where we are sort of blindly dependent on importing lettuce from California, oh, California's having a drought, where does our lettuce come from? Or we're blindly dependent on international wheat prices all over the world and something goes wrong in the Ukraine and, and, and suddenly we're all paying the price. You know, if we, if we do the three things I said, I think we will find ourselves in a system that is um, far more technologically sophisticated, far more locally driven and autonomous, uh, and also becomes a, an engine of economic growth and part of the innovation economy. So even though things do kind of seem rather dire at the moment, you're saying there's, there's actually opportunities for, for growth here where we can actually create more sustainable systems. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll go so far as to say that the most exciting sector of the economy right now is the ag food sector. And if you know your audience takes nothing from this conversation except the following, I'd like to leave with one point, is that agriculture in the future isn't a red barn and a tractor and a straw hat. It is the life sciences. It is engineering. It is robotics. It is marketing. It is health and nutrition. It is all of those things. And, and there's so much innovation happening in that space that backed up with good policy that protects the environment and protects animals and protects workers and whatnot. This wave of innovation that's coming is, is incredible. And, and we are have the, you know, the, the terror of sitting at the front seat of this age of disruption, but we also have the extraordinary opportunity to sit on the front seat of, of one of the great transformations of, of human history, I think. And that will be the complete change of how food and farming systems operate. And we can be great stewards of the land and fabulous innovators in this space. And I, I think the opportunities for creating a sustainable system uh, are enormous and you know, ripe for the taking. Evan, thank you so much for, for joining me today on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for calling. That's it for today. But before I let you go, let me know what you think of Food Week. 
You can reach me on Twitter at M-E-N-A-K-A-R-W. Or you can always email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Zaro Kuzema is our summer producer. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.